Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Yas here, and I just wanted to say it's great to have you join me today because I'm sure we're going to have another fantastic episode. So whether you're here for the first time or if you're one of the repeat loyal listeners of the show, I truly appreciate you. But before we get to today's guest, I just have a small favour to ask, and that's if you could just take a brief moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Ensure that you share it with all your coaching friends, and don't forget to get in touch, guys. Let me know your thoughts on what you think of today's episode or any of the recent episodes you've listened to. You can do this on Twitter at the Coaches Net. Once again, that's at the Coaches Net. And please make sure you do, as I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. Anyway, on to today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, guys. The Coaches Network. Hey, guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name is Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is Ryan May. Morning, Ryan. How are you? Morning. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. Yourself? Yeah, very well. Thank you. I'm really excited for this conversation as well. Ryan, just, to, just before we get into the heart of the conversation, maybe just give a brief insight around who you are, what you do, and we'll go from there. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, so... Um, I work for Aston Villa as uh, head of coach development. Um, I've been working, fortunately, in football uh, for the last 20 years uh, across a few clubs. Started at Chelsea uh, as like a development officer within the FITC, doing some sort of part-time academy work. Um, ventured up to Glasgow Rangers after that. Uh, spent a couple of years up in the sunny north uh, in, again, like a dual community academy role. Uh, managed to uh, come back down to England, to West Brom for my first stint, uh, working in the academy there under Mr. Dan Ashworth. Um, then went off to England to work as an FA youth coach developer. Uh, went back to West Brom um, as head of coaching. And then subsequently have landed where I am at Aston Villa now for the last two and a half years. Awesome. You know, there's quite a lot of um, different environments there taking you up and down the country. Maybe just take us back to the start of your journey and maybe where you first started getting involved in coaching, what it was about coaching that kind of really drew you in. 
Um, it was mainly down to injury, yes. So um, I, had, I had quite a bad injury, which put me on the sidelines for quite a significant period of time. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have um, done my badges early. My dad encouraged me to uh, to do my level two. Well, it was UEFA B part one and part two back in those days, mate. It was uh, a little blue folder and a little red folder for those little A5 ones that for those that are old enough to remember it. Um, so I was managing fortunate enough to pass that when I was 17. So by the time I was at university doing a sports coaching degree and I, I suffered that injury, um, it meant I had the opportunity to sort of go into coaching a little bit more uh, full-blooded, so to speak. Um, it was down to a gentleman called Norman Dawkins, who uh, was the technical director at the time. Um, and basically, I felt a little bit guilty because I was obviously being paid to play and I was going to be out for a long period of time. And I've always been someone that um, feels a little bit guilty because the club you know, wasn't awash with cash. And, and if I'm getting paid for something and I'm not playing, I felt a bit guilty. Uh, so he struck a deal. He basically just turned around and said, well, if you feel guilty, you've got your coaching badges, why don't you help out? Uh, and that really was the start of of doing it, if you like, full-time. Um, and I, what I meant I say full-time, it's not exactly being paid to do it, but I never said no to a coaching opportunity. So I then started getting involved in sort of coaching the other university sides. I was coaching and supporting the first team that I was, I was with. Uh, then started doing some kids coaching within the university, um, like soccer school clubs and half-term clubs. Um, got off my bum and then started to write some letters to people back home. And Sean Gore was a gentleman that was one of the ones that responded. He was at Chelsea as the FITC community director. He's still there. Uh, top, top man. Um, and he gave me my first chance to start doing sort of some holiday clubs and bits and pieces in between. So um, really, it was, uh, like I say, the injury that ignited the opportunity and the passion to um, to stay on the grass and coach. That's quite interesting. So obviously, you know, you, you've had a bit of a setback which just kind of put you in this direction. Mm. Is at any point you didn't start to think, actually, I'd rather do this than play? Um, no, I think playing is the bit you always miss. Um, unfortunately, I had to sort of finish early. I was hung the boots up by 24, 25 because the injuries just, it wasn't getting any better. I couldn't, I couldn't go week to week without having to see a physio. Um, so I think you always miss playing. I don't think you ever want to finish and go straight into coaching, but it's it's a wonderful replacement. Mm. Um, and it's, I suppose, back in the day, yeah. So I'm talking like back in sort of 2000, 2001, when I'm, I'm really starting my sort of journey. Full-time jobs in football didn't really exist. Mm. Um, you had like a head of youth. You had maybe an 18s coach. And then the rest of everything else was part-time. So sort of full-time roles in academies and bits and pieces didn't exist. So in order to start your ventures on into sort of, I suppose, employment into coaching, uh, you had to probably have multiple plates spinning. Yeah. Um, so back in the day, I was working at FITC. I was working um, within development centres. Uh, I was taking women's and girls. I was taking disability. I was taking social inclusion stuff. So you basically filled your day... Um, with opportunities to work with a whole vicarious groups of people with lots of different experiences, lots of different abilities. Um, and I think because of that, it, it enabled some of the soft skills around how you communicate, how you uh, interact with people, how you build rapport, how you build the session designs to get returns of practice for the individuals that um, are within your sort of remit on the session that you're on. Um, it definitely developed uh, adaptability skills. Um, and again, just the passion for wanting to to coach and support people. And I, I think you know there's two really good 
pieces that you've touched on there. And I think um, to start with, you know, you, I like the way that you refer to them as coaching opportunities, um, because mm. actually, if you go back a few minutes ago, you talked about, you know, you, you just took on every opportunity that was there, just trying to get try and get more experience. And I think that's really important for a lot of coaches, especially early on in their journey, just to really consider, right, actually, how much time am I actually getting on the grass? And it might not necessarily be this, the, the, the actual environment you're wanting to work in, but it is an opportunity. It's an opportunity, like you said, to develop those softer skills and work with different types of participants, whether that be from, you know, football in the community as you're talking about there, whether it be social inclusion, whether it be, um, you know, disability football, whatever aspect of the game it is where you can actually pick up these different soft skills that you talk about and actually start to learn around how to maybe cater for different types of individuals based on ability levels, based on whatever the whatever the needs are really. So I guess, you know, just on, on that then, maybe share some of the things that, you picked up early on by being exposed to so many different environments through those opportunities? Yeah, I suppose some of the things that, again, at the time, you don't realise you're absorbing them. But um, definitely when you get more grey hair uh, down the line, you reflect and look back. When you're um, in a a session, a PPA session, that was something that came out new when I was in the FITC. um, And suddenly you've got a class of 30 and you're basically replacing a PE lesson. Some of the kids don't want to be there. So you've got to try and entertain, but you've then also got to try and stretch the ones that are actually interested in being there. So being able to differentiate very, very quickly so you didn't lose a class or it didn't become chaos um, was was something you learned very quickly. You started to think a lot more about your, your practice returns and your practice design to make sure it was uh, meeting the needs of the individuals in your session. Um, you definitely had to be adaptable. You definitely had to realise that y- your first plan often doesn't survive first conflict. And after five minutes, you're, you're on to plan B. And after 10 minutes, you're on to plan Z. <laughs> um, so you had to sort of plan massively for the what ifs. Um, the other aspects of then sort of being able to um, put on a, I suppose, like, like a clown's face when you're tired. So again, back in the day, you'd probably be on the grass maybe four sessions a day. You'd have a breakfast club in the morning. You might then be having a lunchtime club followed by an after-school club followed then by evening training. And sort of maybe if it's like a leisure centre or something like that you're doing, that's the first time that those kids have seen you, uh, but it's your fourth session. So making sure that you still provide them with the energy that the first lot got was, was hard work. And it's been able to put that mask on and still make sure that despite you being tired, um, you're providing them with their exposure because they're ready and they're excited to be there. So maintaining your energy levels and sort of making sure that you meet the expectations of the people that are in front of you, um, despite the day that you've had, uh, I think were, were all really important things that set you up for uh, good experiences to when you then get into elite environments and you're coaching good players, Listen, it's, all, it's not a walk in the park because there's different wants and needs and there's different expectations. But in essence, it gives you one hell of a grounding. And I sometimes do think, obviously, in my role, I have a lot of interaction with developing coaches, uh, mentoring new coaches coming on board. Uh, I do a lot of stuff when I go back into colleges and stuff and just talk about my journey so that it maybe hopefully helps someone start theirs. And the biggest thing I see is people being in a hurry um, and being quite selective uh, in thinking that that's what I want. I want to coach elite players. I'm not coaching anything else. And there's nothing wrong in that aspiration. But when you look up in the dictionary, the word coach, it doesn't say academy. It doesn't say first team. A coach is a coach. 
So if you love coaching, then you should value working with a four-year-old through to a 44-year-old of all ability levels. Um, because in essence, that's what you want to be. That's your skill sets. That's your, your calling. Um, so yeah, I would never, I would encourage people never to say no to an opportunity to get on the grass, despite whatever it is, because um, it will add value to you. And hopefully at some, you know, or whatever level, you'll enjoy it at some point, but um, it'll give you some experiences. And I've carried it forward, really. And it's actually shaped a lot of the work that I've done as a head of coaching in the fact that a lot of our coach competency frameworks that we do with staff um, we'll, we'll assess you not on how good you are at something. I'm not a big fan of looking at it and saying, oh, well, you know, what would you think you are at this competency or that competency as? And I, I've now pushed ours all towards experience. So I don't care how good or bad you are at something. I want to know how much time you've got invested in doing it. And that's what we'll get coaches to chase. We'll get them to chase time and experience. Um, and I suppose my belief set for that, Yaz, is I'm yet to meet someone with lots of experience that at worst is just okay at their job. Most of the time, someone with a lot of experience is, is rather proficient and competent. So um, that's what we try and encourage the coaches to do is chase experiences, chase um, time spent doing things rather than think, oh, I've got better at that or I'm good at this, so I'm going to focus on that. I think this is a really good point. And then I think you talk about you know coaching and it's not just a, an age-specific thing, but how, how important do you think it is that maybe especially early on maybe coaches to experiment with different environments to see what maybe kind of gets them ticking a little bit but as you start to kind of build that experience that you talk about yes you want to still be uh, you know flexible and adaptable but depending on the environment you're working but how important do you think it is to maybe start to potentially specialize a little bit in a particular area whether that be based on an age group whether that be based on a, a type of environment or or whatnot yeah no it's, it's a very good question um specialization is an interesting point i'm, I'm currently doing some of my own sort of research around specialist coaching models. And I'm speaking to a lot of high profile coaches. Uh, and one recently uh, I had a chat with um, and he basically turned around and said, how can you specialize until you're an expert of generalize? Um, and in essence, we had a good debate and unpacked that quite a bit. And it's, how do you know what you know, really? How do you, uh, know that you're ready to specialize. You might have a passion um, to want to unpack and learn a little bit more around sort of some more specific areas. But again, it goes back to coaching. The generalized skill sets that we have in order to uh, excel in a specialized type of environment, say, for example, like I need one to be a, a forwards coach or an in possession coach. Um, all of those generalized skill sets of being a coach are going to be the things that underpin your area of, of um, expertise. So you can't not continue to pay attention to it. It's like the daily vitamins or the brilliant basics. You have to be brilliant at being that generalized coach, that adaptable coach. Because in essence, they're the bits that whatever environment you want to specialize in, you're going to have to draw back on. You're going to have to have those deep trench uh, roots to your experiences in order then to build the specialized sort of model on top of what you want to do so there's nothing wrong in you researching it there's nothing wrong in you learning about it but for me i wouldn't try and be in a hurry to to call yourself a specialist until you think you've got the generalized brilliant basics um to a level that you think you can build that platform on 100 i totally agree with that and i think something really uh, interesting that came out of what you said there as well is that the rush piece do you do you think that because you know <clears throat> coaching has become an industry where people seem to be, at least from my perspective, getting into it a lot earlier, mm -hmm. especially 
in terms of trying to push into the elite game anyway, um, that there's almost this, uh, this, this race that people are putting against, against themselves to kind of be in a certain position by a certain time because, you know, like I said, it, it, it's, it's getting more competitive because the people are trying to get in earlier. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And, you know, do you think, that, do you think there's some real disadvantages to getting in early in that respect? Um, yes and no. I think that obviously the explosion of coaching jobs and opportunities and actually careers within coaching um, is only a positive thing. Um, it gets a lot more people, even younger, into that career pathway and that professionalism. So it's that is only a good thing. I think the only problem comes is when what you are is you're in a hurry to get somewhere and then you don't pay due care and attention to the, the due diligence that you need to do. Um, we're all on different conveyor belts. We're all on different places where we'll get different exposures, opportunities. That's just life. That's not just sport. Um, but it's the ones for me that deliberately try and fast track and cut corners. If, if, if that's what you're doing, then for me, that would be a worry. Um, again, something that was said to me, because I was that young man in a hurry at one point in time. I was, you know, I passed my license by the time I was 21. So I was very young. I was highly qualified. Um, in my head, I felt that I was good. Um, you only know what you know. That's what I said earlier. Um, I had a lot to learn, but I, I had a passion and, and I had an ability on the grass that meant I could, I could earn employment. But what that taught me over time is you, you, the experience pieces I've come to value even more over the, the sort of the bits of getting to somewhere a little bit quicker. We all want to earn a little bit more money. Um, and that's probably the bit that fuels and drives the, the fast tracking mentality. Um, but I remember a time when um, I, I'd got a promotion and I'd, I'd got into this new job. And I remember sitting there as after a week and thinking, oh my God, I'm a fraud. I'm, I'm out of my depth. I don't know what I'm doing. I've blagged my way here. I'm not ready for this. Um, and it was like a, a sense of sort of panic a little bit that I'd be exposed. Um, and, I, and I remember just sort of sitting back and just sitting there and taking stock and just thinking, and I did talk it through with family members, et cetera, but I just sort of sat there and thought, well, actually, no, you haven't, you've got there through merit because in essence, someone has took a process of recruitment. They've gone through, they've tried and tested it to the point that they feel that you're um, competent or ready or has potential to do this job. So look back at the things that you need to do, reflect on the things that maybe now you need to go and seek help with, maybe things that you need to learn a greater depth to and map it out and plan it out um, and not try and um, blag your way through and, and sort of paper over the cracks. And that bit for me is the important bit. You'll get to where you get to. Sometimes it's a bit quick. Sometimes it's slower than what you want to do. But whatever the circumstance you then find yourself in, reflect look at them mapping out what, what the sort of the short, medium and long-term goals are. Where are the skills gaps? Where are the things that you need to focus upon um, and, and plan it out and, and bring others into it and to sort of help you in the areas that you're short on you. The biggest one thing I say to a lot of coaches is they, they almost think they've got no infallibilities. They, they haven't got any weaknesses. We all have. We all have. We've got loads. It's the recognition of which ones they are and how much support you need and when you ask for help. And that sort of humility aspect, I think, is key. I think there's, there's something great that's come out of there because it's two parts. I think it's the recognition of it, but 
it's also understanding just because something might not be a, a strength in this environment doesn't mean it's not a strength in this environment. So as well as, you know, the same thing for areas of development, like you might have something that's a great skill set when you're working with 16s, as an example. But if you're working with under 12s elsewhere, you might need to adapt that and actually lean on some of the other softer skills that you've developed over the years. So I guess, yeah, you know, coming back to what you said previously, you only know what you know. What were some of the questions that maybe you'd get coaches to start considering asking themselves to, I guess, become more self-aware and reflect more, more effectively around those strengths and areas for development for themselves? Yeah, reflection is a, is a very personal piece. I see lots of, uh, I've been on lots of courses, I've tutored lots of courses, listened to lots of academics that will, will say that there's a right and a wrong way to reflect. There's better models than others to reflect. I, I agree and I disagree. I think it's important that you develop a strong habit of reflection. Uh, I'm not sure there's anyone's got any copyright on the right questions to ask in order to um, reflect effectively. If you build good habits in which you're reflecting to turn around and say, right, okay, have I met the needs and expectations of those in front of me today? Have I met the needs and expectations of myself of what I wanted to achieve today? Um, establish the, I suppose, the gap analysis between the two. Um, and whatever those reflections are, whether, you know, I'd encourage people to have a hot reflection immediately afterwards, uh, follow that up with sort of some more, cold reflections a day or two later when I'm then thinking about the next set of planning because the reflection should influence that that next set of planning that you do because it's cyclical. And then I don't think there are any wrong questions and I don't think there's any um, better questions that I could suggest. It's, it's, it's trying to make sure that when you reflect, it doesn't get influenced on your personality. I've, I've tutored lots of coaches that go one or two ways for me. If it's gone really, really well, the reflection is quite shallow. Yeah, yeah, this was good. That was good. Brilliant. Yeah, great. If the session went really bad, then it, the world's ended and there was nothing good in it. Um, it's just linked to how their emotions and what their personality is feeling at the time. Um, and sometimes they'll look at it and go, what went well? Even better if changed next time, which is, which is a good, solid basis of, of, you know, some strong questions of, of reflection. But the problem for me then is if it's linked to that personality bit, you don't dive deep enough and you don't unpack it. I encourage you to find a reflection model that helps you bounce around until you exhaust it. So say, for example, um, we use one um, that I picked up from a gentleman called Bob Muir at Leeds Beckett. Uh, and it's got four segments to it. So it's got uh, coaching behaviours, player engagement, uh, session objectives and practice returns. So you can bounce around that model. So you start with something, you might start with saying, okay, did I achieve my session objectives today? Yes. Well, how do I know what I know? Well, the player's engagement showed me that they were doing this, 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 and this, and they would give me the answers back on this, this, and this. Okay, well, was that because of how were you, how were you behaving? Were you driving the session? Were you being quite discovered? Did you intend to be, you know, more trial and error based? Were you tended to be like lots of question and answer? How did that go? Well, actually, yeah, I had to drive it quite a bit. Okay, right. Well, maybe what was the practice design like? Was the practice design too complicated that you had to manage the practice a lot? Or, you know, was the practice too boring so you had to drive motivation? So straight away, just by looking at those four areas, even in those 30 seconds I've just been speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm packing it by bouncing around. And then at some point you'll exhaust it and go, yeah, do you know what? The practice design, maybe it was a little bit too repetitive and boring and simple and there was no end product. Ah, brilliant. What I'll do then is I'll add, I'll add a goal in on the end of it so there's some element of end product. And I'll try that again on the next session. Brilliant. 
So you've bounced your way around and you've just unpacked it a little bit more layers. So therefore you've exhausted your, um, your reflections. But what I've done is I've managed to get past the potential bit of feeling over um, confident at the session because it had gone well or being underwhelmed and nothing was great because I've unpacked those layers. Yes, I might be feeling down because it didn't go well, but then as I unpack it, I'll, oh, actually, do you know what? The practice design worked and yeah, the player engagement was okay and player A and player B and player C did get it. So you can almost like just balance your emotional seesaw out, if that makes sense. No, I think it's a great way to look at it. And I think that the, the key thing that really kind of jumps out at me there is, you know, having, you know, you've identified the things that you think have gone well, but actually what made those go well, you know, like you talked about the behaviours and it's one of the things I, you know, similar to myself, you know, I've chewed courses in the past and, you know, I always get coaches to think like, don't just tell me what you think went well, try and attach that to a behaviour. What was the behaviour that encouraged that outcome? Because then those are the things that you really want to reinforce. You can't just say, yeah, it went well and I'm just going to make sure we do that practice again. Actually, it might not have been the practice at all. It might have been the way you interacted with the individuals. So I guess on that though, you know, one of the, one of the challenges obviously is that you touched on it earlier as well. There's not, obviously it's increasingly more now than maybe it was 15, 20 years ago in terms of full-time jobs. But a lot of the coaches that are probably working, not just in academies, but even in grassroots are probably just doing it as an additional thing. Um, mm -hmm. or a means to an end to potentially get themselves into a full-time career, but they're not quite there yet. So they're probably yeah. juggling out something else alongside that. So reflection, if you are, you know, for a lot of coaches that I've come across, it can be quite a chore, if you like, because yeah. actually where are they going to find the time to do it? Some of them don't even find the time to necessarily plan the session, let alone reflect on it. Mm -hmm. um, so what, you know, what, what, what would your advice be to some of those coaches thinking, right, actually, where am I going to get the time to do this? Because, you talk about hot reflection, but then obviously following that at some point is going to be a colder reflection. Um, and yeah, like, you know, a lot, a lot of coaches will probably, even though I believe there will be time somewhere, they probably don't want to make, probably don't understand how important it is to maybe make time for that. So what would your advice be to those coaches there? Oh, crikey. That, well, we're all unique, aren't we? We've all got our own uh, work-life balances. We've all got our, pressures on our time the one thing i'll always say is listen you might not ever have enough time but it's the only thing in life we do control how we use um so every decision that you make will will decide how you've utilized that minute that second the time in your day um i suppose for me it does go down to um and i, I see this lots with coaches that want to transition from part-time into full-time and they talk about yeah, i'm desperate i'm hungry for it and, I, and I'm saying, okay, well, how hungry? Because in essence, it's very competitive and that conveyor belt never stops. And there's always someone else that's coming up, up on the rails behind you. So we can't ever stand still. Um, and listen, we've all been there. I, I had to juggle what I would call my mortgage paying job uh, while you're sort of doing three or four different coaching jobs to supplement your income. And eventually what you're trying to do is you're almost like trying to look at your city as a little seesaw. So at the minute, your mortgage paying job bringing more money. The better that you get and the more opportunities you coach, then slowly that gap will get closer. And then they'll get to a point that you've got to make a hard decision because what you've been then become used to, Yaz, is two salaries in essence. And that then becomes the real decision of how hungry are you? Because in essence, if you're going to jump to your first full-time job and you've worked off of two, you're normally quite experienced in this mortgage paying job because you've done it for probably six, seven, eight years or more. And then you've slowly built up your coaching credibility and reputation. And again, would have earned probably a decent salary. So in order to take that first step, 
nine times out of 10, you're taking a pay cut to potentially do a career that you want to do. So that threshold, I don't think a lot of people think about. Um, it's not factored. They're just consumed and driven by the fact that they want to be a full-time coach, which is brilliant. But there's sacrifices that have to be made. Um, and again, a lot of that time, potentially, you might be in your mid-20s, you might be married, you might have a young child. Taking a pay cut, especially in the current world climate, would be, would be a very, very tough thing to do for anybody, I would probably say. Um, but my first three, I suppose, promotions, if you like, within football, all took pay cuts. Um, and people might think that's strange. But in essence, what you then start to do, so... So say, for example, I was obviously full-time in sort of the community stuff and doing the academy stuff part-time at the early stages of my career. And when I transitioned to that academy stuff, because there was two, two wages and I'd got to more of a senior level in the FITC world, then initially when I transferred, it was a massive drop in, in my wage. I lost about 10 grand initially. And then when you start to work your way into academy bits and pieces, then you think, well, okay, I need to... I need to then potentially look at this step. And sometimes that might not be in the environment you're in. You might have to take a backwards or sideways step in order to get that promotion. But it might be a, a less of a category or a club that will give you the chance because you're younger, but it will be a less of a wage. But you know that if you jump on that bandwagon, you've got further you can go. You know what I mean? So you sometimes have to take steps backwards, but they are forward steps, if that makes sense. But you have to be able to potentially take the pain. Um which I understand is very, very difficult. And I was very, very, very fortunate to have a, a very supportive uh, family. I had a wife and a young child when those things were going on. Um, but people were very supportive and helped me work towards what I wanted to achieve. And, and those sacrifices, thankfully, paid off. But I do understand from people that it's not always there. And, and I say it to a lot of coaches. Actually, do you enjoy your mortgage paying job? Yeah. Okay. And you enjoy this job? Yeah. Well, Actually, you might have your cake and eat it at this precise minute in time. You know what I mean? So it's not that, that I suppose, desire to be in this golden promised land of being full-time in, in an academy. Sometimes you might be sort of chasing something that actually isn't perfect. You might already be in a wonderful position and think, do you know what? I get to do a hobby that I get paid for, working with wonderful elite children that are really gifted and talented, and it's a joy to go and work with them. And actually, my mortgage paying job, whether it's a teacher, whether I work in an office, wherever I work on the bins, wherever I'm a doctor, wherever I'm a business person, wherever I've got my own company, if you love what you do there, you might actually be in the best of both worlds. Um, so it's that it's that reflections of, of reality, really, of sometimes circumstance means that you can't take it and you can only be what you can be. But I would always say that if you're not being able to plan effectively when you come into sessions then you're taking away something from those children that you're potentially there for. So if you're going to be committed to something, be committed fully. And for me, you have to find the time to plan appropriately to make sure that you meet the needs of those children when they walk on that grass, because ultimately they don't deserve any shortcuts because they're there for the reason of, of wanting to fall in love with the game of football and, and develop a passion for it and hopefully a talent and for the, for the very few gifted few, a career. But in essence, we can't shortchange that just because we're busy. If we make that commitment, I feel we need to find the time. 100%. So let's, let's come back to your journey a little bit. Then obviously, you, know, you started off in the football and the community project with, um, with Chelsea. You then mentioned that you went over to Rangers. What was that like? And what was the role there? And how did that, how did that come about? Oh, well, yeah, it was very, very different. Um, you, you, again, those little things where you have that sort of narrow-minded thinking, football's football, isn't it? Um, 
just little things around just the way I had structured things at NFITC in England, going up to Scotland, it was massively different. Um, holidays were different. Bank holidays were different. Um, how they approached doing football in the community. I remember sessions as tasters for the schools in and around just so they could see the quality of the product. And then obviously off the back of that, they might then book me in for PPA or after school clubs or bits and pieces. And I remember sitting down on the first week and it, like introducing that to the coaches saying, listen, this is an initiative I want to run. And they looked at me as if I had two heads. It was like, what? what are you on about? Can't give away free stuff. It's a business. You know, you have, but they have to pay for it. And I'm like, yeah, but you, you, you know, you can, they can try the product. You know, look at the schools that you've never managed to get in that have never bought our products. Well, let's go and give them a free taster. Um, and, and it was, honestly, I'm sitting there thinking, this is common sense in my head, but they were looking at it like I was an alien. And I'm like, wow. So there were lots of different cultural differences. Um, it's a fantastic country. The football, the football daft up there, they love it. It's very, very passionate. Um, some wonderful people, some great, great coaches. Uh, and I, I enjoyed the sort of the two years that I spent up there. It was, um, again, an NFITC role, doing some academy and development centres and bits and pieces, but it was very much more business-driven. It was a commercial enterprise, not necessarily a charitable enterprise, which a lot of the FITCs went down here. So it was, it was very much driven around making income um, and making sure that you hit sales targets and that you hit, you hit the budgets that were expected. So that was a, a, a good experience because it was a different one. Because although you had to make money at Chelsea, again, it was, there was more of a sort of a corporate social responsibility strand and flavour to the work that you did in and around the communities as well as making money for the brand, so to speak. So it sharpened me up. Um, it helped my business skills, definitely. Um, it, it made me look at things from a different perspective. Um, so it was an enjoyable time that, that, that I was up there for. And um, one that I'd recommend if people are brave enough to take themselves out of their comfort zone, uproot. And obviously I moved the whole length of the country from uh, sunny uh, Berkshire all the way up to um, uh, Glasgow. It was a, a wonderful experience and one that I wouldn't change for the world. Awesome. So you need to spend a couple of years doing that role and then you now moved over to your first time at West Brom, was it? Yeah, so I moved, I moved down south and there was... Um, some circumstances in the family, which meant obviously my wife was from the Midlands, that um, we wanted to make sure and I made her a promise that I'd get her back to sort of towards uh, home, so to speak. And uh, I was looking for opportunities in and around and um, the opportunity came up at West Brom. Uh, it was around coaching and workforce manager at the, at the time uh, and working obviously part-time in the academy. Um, and very quickly in a short space of time, you know, when I spoke about that balancing off stuff, my CV had built up to the point that I was probably level pegging my academy experience as well as my sort of FIT experience. Uh, and thankfully, in, in a short space of time, uh, I managed to transition for that first time into full-time academy, uh, working with, uh, with the lads um, down at uh, West Brom. So what, what, what year are we in then? Because there's been a lot of changes in terms of how the youth systems have been set up, especially post, you know, each European things like that. So what, whereabouts are we in that this time frame? Uh, that was 2006. Okay. So um, it was, crikey, so I started Chelsea in sort of 2001, moved to Glasgow 2004, came back 2006. Um, it was, it was pre-Triple P. So uh, it was obviously under, under the old sort of... Uh, 
academy status. So it, West Brom had recently transferred from the old Charter for Quality Centre of Excellences into having an academy status. Um, and obviously the P came in in 2010. So uh, we had sort of three or four years of, of building our academy under, under fantastic. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Leadership. Um, initially as Dan as academy manager, but he obviously then transitioned into technical director. Uh, and then under Mark Harrison, who I've obviously worked for um, at West Brom for a long time and now at Aston Villa. Two fantastic leaders, uh, two great role models, two people that I've learned masses from, um, which has shaped my own uh, leadership stuff as well as um, improving my coaching knowledge and just me as a person. So I'm very thankful to everyone that's given me the opportunity, Sean Gore and, and the very first start, uh, Craig Mulholland when I went up to obviously Glasgow Rangers, Dan initially uh, and a gentleman called Fraser Foster at West Brom, uh, Mark continuing because Mark was obviously, you know, the, the man that I ended up working full-time for in an academy perspective. Dan obviously helped me get to the FA when I moved on to onto there and obviously Mark brought me back to Aston, uh, West Brom and then Aston Villa. So I've got a lot of people to thank me for that have wanted me to be around to, to work for them, to work with them, um, to help achieve the projects and, and sort of plans that they had to help young people achieve their dreams. And it's something that I've been really thankful for that someone sees value in me and wants to help me develop to, um, to do the hobby that I love that, that is actually a job. Uh, definitely, and I think that's re- it's really important to kind of just appreciate those that are supporting you on that journey. So I guess, you know, coming back to the initial question, obviously, each of you came in 2010, you've there 20, uh, 2006. What what was that period like between 2006, 2010, and what were the major changes that you've seen since then in terms of when each of you did come in? Yeah, I suppose one of the things that, that didn't help us at the time is we were doing lots of things that were e triple p like so we had lots of structure we had um, a dna we had a way of playing we had a top to bottom approach that was linked to the first team um, we had a, a strong staffing model we had school release we had position specific programs so a lot of the things that we had uh, instilled were the things that obviously enabled us in our opinion to, to get a bit of traction and maybe catch up with some of the bigger boys even though we had smaller budgets because of, of the coaching culture that we had in place and the structure. Uh, what EPPP did is it levelled the playing field. It made those that weren't necessarily thinking about um, or focusing around structure and governance and guidance and facilities. Um, it enabled some to almost like catch us up a little bit because it, not that we had a secret source type stuff, but we had a way of thinking that maybe was a competitive advantage to some at the time that, that didn't. And what EPPP made sure that everyone dotted the I's and crossed the T's and and, and covered their due diligence to provide the, the correct environments for, for the players coming through, which was only a right thing to do. And it's been a marvellous thing, the Triple P. There's some drawbacks, um, but there's also some wonderful positivity aspects that the last 10 years have, have provided for advancing uh, English football and especially uh, young players coming through to try and find careers. Um, but yeah, the, f- the first four years was, again, a wonderful education. Um, the, the nice bit again, Yaz, was we didn't have too many full-time staff. Now, a cat one, 
I've got a full-time staff at every age group, nine through to 23s. And obviously in, in the more business and PDP, you've got multiple full-time staffs at 18s and 23s. Back then we had five full-time staff full stop, um, which meant that across a working week, I'd work with pre-academy all the way through to the PDP. Um, so what a wonderful experience that was, that every time you're, you're on the grass sort of two, three times a day, but you're working with all different ages and abilities. Um, so again, it goes back to that enrichment of experience stuff. I was very, very fortunate to be in good places, surrounded by exceptional coaches like Michael Appleton and, and Jimmy Shan and Aaron Danks, um, Mike Scotts, all of, all of us that were in and around it have, have obviously gone on to achieve good things in, in, in our careers. But I was just really fortunate to be surrounded by some really great people that you'd learn off every day that had the same enthusiasm and passion and, and hunger to want to um, get better at their jobs, to try and become uh, excellent in their coaching craft and understand themselves. Um, so, yeah, I just consider myself very lucky to have been surrounded by, by really good people that you've learned off every day and, and that are good friends. Awesome. So then, you know, you, you spent, uh, how long was it at West Brom for then before you moved off? I went to um, the FA in 2013. Okay, so seven, just over seven years at West Brom. Yeah. Um, moving over to the FA, maybe just talk us a little bit about what your role was there and what that what that looked like on a day to day. Yeah, I was obviously fortunate from from a very um, early onset. Obviously, I passed my A last at 21, like I said previously, and what that uh, gave me the opportunity to do was become a tutor at the FA uh, quite early on. There was a gentleman who did my sort of big license back in the day, Jim Kelman, genius, lovely man. Again, another sort of early mentor in my coaching um, career. Jim managed to um, help me get on to be a tutor very early on the, the level one when it was first uh, initiated. So I had an early inroad into tutoring and, and that probably, that plate I kept spinning alongside my coaching stuff. So you work through your level one, your level two tutoring, when the Youth Awards came out, I applied and was fortunate enough to be a Module 1 tutor, then then became a Module 2 tutor, then became a Module 3 tutor, then a B licensed tutor. So I had sort of those five coach development plates that were spinning alongside my, um, again, my mortgage paying job, if you like, which was the coaching at the time. But you'd still had that almost like trapdoor just in case the what if, if I lost that, I'd need sort of a plan B type stuff. And, and it was nice to just supplement your income as well. Um, so I had this tutoring flavour to, to my development. And when um, the FA role came up, it was around um, following the Burns report, and, which was basically where they looked at what the professional game needed for regards coach education. And the game spoke and basically said they needed bespoke courses to meet the needs of youth coaches. And obviously they wanted in-situ support, um, which was tailored and bespoke to the club's wants and needs. So basically what came out the back of that was uh, the FA Youth Coach Developer Programme. Um, so I was fortunate enough to obtain one of those roles. And what basically that was, it was delivering on A licenses, B licenses, uh, advanced youth awards, delivering youth awards. But you would then go into clubs and provide that in-situ support. Um, and that sort of reality-based learning was um, a front runner. Uh, and I know that I managed to present over to the Giro panel in UEFA around in-situ reality-based stuff over in Florence. Because in essence, what the FA did in conjunction with the professional game and the academies was, was basically give us a, a real shot in the arm of adrenaline, which really catapulted us ahead of, um, in my opinion, a lot of the other European nations around uh, youth coach development. And we're bearing the fruit of that a little bit with the um, EPPP framework that put in place and 
and the addition to the sort of the coach education framework and and then sort of in situ mentoring and support that was provided i think it's it's enabled us to really speed up the quality of the product that we provide in this country and i think that's what we're bearing the fruit of a little bit with gareth getting quite a few young players coming through the strength and depth of what's happening the increase in the the numbers of homegrown talent playing within the premier league but also the number of lads then that cascade down and are filling sort of the football league clubs as well so um i believe i was again very fortunate in timing to be at the start of a program um that that potentially was was really impactful in in shaping where we are today a little bit um so yeah no, again just working for the fa as it's it's a wonderful organization and again it was just like going on to a master's degree you know i'm going in i'm supposed to be helping people but i'm sitting there thinking flipping heck off i'm working with all these great people in the clubs all this experience and knowledge and resource of what they've had i'm coming in giving my support around the bits that i'm, I'm just absorbing stuff all the time um so it was it was just brilliant sort of three and a half four years until i then ventured back into uh, west Brom as head of coaching it was just a brilliant existence working with great people Definitely. And I think you know, one of the key things that you talk about is just rubbing shoulders with people who are doing, who've also got their own things to bring to the table. And I think that's really important. But, you know, for a lot of coaches, they're not necessarily going to get exposure to that sort of stuff. So what, what and especially if they're predominantly working in grassroots football as well, they might often not even have someone they can kind of even bounce ideas off. So what would your maybe mm-hmm. advice be to those sorts of individuals who are thinking, right, actually, um, because of the lack of maybe external influence within their environments that they're currently in, they kind of, they become a bit tunnel visioned and a bit unaware of actually just how effective or ineffective they are being. And they're maybe not, they're maybe yeah. not stretching themselves as, as much as they maybe could be or should be. Yeah, I suppose that any journey that you're starting, there's a, there's a few touch points where people will be invited in to support you. So that's normally around qualifications. So you do get that external um, tangible feedback if you work through your awards. So there'll be those periods of time. Um, I wish I was starting my career now, Yaz, if I'm brutally honest. There's um, loads of opportunity for um, jobs at different um, clubs, different levels, different um, phases. So there's there's a, um, a richness of opportunity. But there's also an enormous amount of um, resource that you can tap into. So back in the day, when you think I started jazz, that there wasn't, listen, the internet was just about starting, for goodness sake. So there wasn't coaching blogs. There wasn't um, loads and loads and loads of access to um, podcasts. There was literally, you picked up books and you read books. And once you read that book, you very rarely potentially had the opportunity to jump into um Twitter and share thoughts and bounce ideas around and access the global work. You know what I mean? I can go and speak to a coach in any country around the world and, and sort of bat ideas around at the click of a button. Um, so I wish I was exposed to all that richness now when I was first starting. So the only, I suppose, health warning I'll put on it, there's some fantastic stuff out there. There's also a lot of dross. There's also a lot of coaches that, and would portray to be experts and some of the stuff I read I'm thinking goodness gracious me I hope that's not influencing coaches it's in my opinion just not good practice um but that's what makes our world so wonderfully colorful isn't it in the fact that you know differences of opinion and they make the world go around basically so um 
coaches just need to tap into that wonderful uh, resources out there. But it's like most things, isn't it? When they teach kids in schools, you know, with fake news, don't always believe everything you read. Make sure you've got good critical thinking skills to make sure that whatever you're looking at or absorbing and trying to learn from that you don't just take it as gospel. You you, you unpack it yourself, you reflect and you, you poke it, you prod it, you, you throw it around a little bit, you, you check and challenge it to make sure that if it is going to be something that sticks and becomes part of your coaching brand that, you know, you've, you've tried and tested it and, you know, made sure it's good work in practice moving forward. You know what I mean? But there's so much resource and I don't think any coach should have any um, famine of being able to enrich their knowledge. They should be able to access everything they want from a variety of different sources. And I know you said about the ability to bounce off people. More and more and more, you'll see lots of experienced coaches that have given their time a little bit, creating little blogs and and giving access to themselves to help people. All right, it's maybe not in person, um, but there's lots of opportunities like we're doing now over FaceTime or Teams or Zoom or whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, there's lots of good projects out there. So the FA do some great stuff around the regional coach mentors. Um, so there's, there's, if you, if you're sitting there listening to this and you'll find yourself that you feel a little bit alone and you can't access some stuff, there's lots and lots of direction that you can be pointed into sort of tap into some of those resources. hundred percent. And if anyone that wanted to get more information, it's just simply just contact the county FA to kind of get that information. 100%. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm actually part of the regional coach mentoring team as well as being working as a coach developer and. It's just incredible how many people have come across who actually the through the mentoring experiences themselves have actually said, well, actually, one, the mentoring has not only kept me in the game, but it's actually mm-hmm. changed the way I not just coach, but live my life. So yeah, it's yeah. quite an influential um, influential journey for anyone that doesn't get involved in it. So, that, about, so I definitely kind of a second that. Just to kind of build on from then, your role now, you know, you're, 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 you're well, at Aston, um, West Brom, when you went back, you was head of coaching. Um, yeah. You've taken on a similar type of role now at Villa as well. Maybe just share yeah. a bit of insight around what that role looks like um, and how you kind of operate on a day-to-day. Yeah, so in essence, when I, when I was... So the head of coaching role can come up with a number of different guises. So you've... Under um, a thing called the Elite Heads of Coaching Programme delivered by the Premier League, which is a course that helps train heads of coaching. Um, I think you've got sort of three different types. You've got a head of coaching, you've got a head of coach development, uh, and then you, you might have a head of coaching and development. And in essence, the three uh, aspects potentially that fall under the remit um, would be uh, curriculum and your coaching programs, uh, coach development, uh, and then obviously your elite player aspect of making sure that you meet the needs of, of the players within your, your section. So there's three silos, if you like, that, that come under the job. Uh, at West Brom, I was obviously working across all three. Uh, at Villa, I was very fortunate that we've obviously like potentially split that job in half. So we've got a head of player and technical development, so Nick Haycock, and then we've got myself a head of coach development. In essence, we're both heads of coaching. When we're out on the grass, we're looking at session designs, curriculums, players, coaches. We're just providing support. It's just that layer of accountability. So I'm purely accountable for, and, and if you like, the, the plan to review aspects of coach development. Um, doesn't mean I don't support player development. Me and Nick work exceptionally closely together and, and we dovetail in around sort of the multidisciplinary teams that we've got in the club in order to make sure that we meet the needs of, of the academy KPIs. So, but in essence, they're the three, if you like, silos of work 
coaching curriculum, coach development, and player development. And in terms of that, what, what you know, what can maybe your coaches expect in terms of that? How 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 much input you have in their journey, or is it very much led by them and just supported by you, if you like? Because I think a lot of people in different environments who maybe have or don't have a head of coaching often think, right, okay, just because this person is a head of coaching or this person has got some experience or senior to me that actually, it's coming back to what you said earlier, I'm just going to follow them. So, you know, Mm -hmm. go back to some of the younger coaches who are maybe looking at some of these things as, right, where can I go to be, you know, get some support or influence? Actually, it's one of the things I've always said to coaches, well, what do you think, where where are you looking to get support in? And is the person that you're going to get the support from actually skilled and knowledgeable in that area because as coaches we've all got different skill sets we've all got different areas of expertise if you like um so i'll give you an example if someone came to me i'm you know most of my experiences has been with kind of 14s to kind of 21s mm-hmm. um for a large part of my coaching journey and it's not to say i haven't had experiences elsewhere but i would definitely wouldn't say i i'm i'm, I'm a specialist in that and i'm not saying i'm a specialist yeah. in this either but I would say that this is the, the area that I've got the most experience of. I can probably lend the most uh, insight around. How important is it for coaches to basically identify who they're going to to get the support mm-hmm. in line with what they're actually looking to get out of it, if that makes sense? No, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, obviously, that's what we build our coach competency framework and every um, coach has development action plans. No different from a player. So if you look at a coach and says, right, okay, the player's at the heart of his uh, thoughts and mindset, and everything you do will be around that player and you'll build it around it. If you're a coach developer, the person in the middle just gets replaced as a player to a coach. So nothing's different. Uh, everything I try to do is built around that long-term development action plan. We'll break things down of the competencies of areas of focus and things to think about and reflect. Um, but in essence, my job is to make myself redundant. It's a wonderful thing that heads of coaching are available but my job is to make people self-sufficient on their own personal development. So that's probably the first rule is to try and upskill people so that they don't need me. Um, Not that I want to do myself out of a job. So there's two questions that I always want people to ask so that I I still maintain employment is the first question. If my boss is asked any of the coaches if I'm effective is do you need Ryan anymore? I hope at some point we get to the position that they go, no, I don't need Ryan. And just so that I can still keep paying my mortgage, I want them to ask a second question, which is, um, do you want Ryan? And hopefully the answer to that is yes, because what they then see is value in the relationship, um, value in the process, value in um, how we work together in order to achieve goals. So our um, CCF and coach development support, I'll never do anything for you. I'll never chase you for anything because it's yours. You own it. Um, I'm a catalyst to potentially help you get there quicker or at times slow things down. So in essence, that's how I define my role. It's being a catalyst to development, but I will never chase people. I'll never force myself on anybody. Um, Whenever I sit down and there's a new coach comes on board, and we obviously do a coach development induction. And one of the slides in that induction is, um, I'm given to you, if you like, as a support mechanism. You don't have to use me. as long as you follow the process, you can choose to put into your world whoever you see best fit that will achieve the framework that we've put in place. And as long as you evidence that you're doing exactly the same as I would do with you, i.e. you're having frequent meetings, you're tracking your journey and you're measuring the evidence to show that experiential journey, 
It can be with whoever you like. It's not personal. You've got to invite the people into your world that best fit your wants and needs at that time. So my job is to facilitate that learning environment for them and, again, be that catalyst to help them move forward. And I think that's a great way to put it. In fact, what you've described as your role, essentially, is exactly how I describe it. My role is to actually get to a point where you guys don't need me. Yeah. Don't feel like you need me. But actually, exactly what you said, and it's, it, it, it sounds... It, it's, it's kind of weird because X is exactly how you put it is exactly how I say it. I don't want to yeah. be, I don't want to feel uh, needed. I want to feel wanted by you guys because actually if I feel needed, that means you're dependent on me. Yeah. Um, I want to get to a point and whether that's players or coaches that I'm supporting, I'm here, use me, but don't think that actually you need me to carry on doing what you're doing. But actually, yeah. think, you know what? He's been so impactful for me that actually I think he's going to add real value going forward even though I feel competent enough to do what I'm doing anyway. It's yeah. he's going to help me, he's going to stretch me further. And like you said, be a catalyst for further development. So I think that's a great way to put it. So just, you know, obviously you've had a range of different experiences and, you know, we've talked a lot about the different environments you've worked in. I'm really interested to know maybe from your perspective, what the, what your roles have taught you about leading others. Cause you talked to early on about you having some great leaders that you've been working under. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you've picked up from them? And, you know, what has that taught you about how, how maybe you'd like to lead? And, you know, if you have had any, I'm sure you have, and you've mentioned a few names in the past already, but what have been some of the major influences on your own coaching journey and how maybe a particular individual has maybe influenced you? Or it might have been a situation that you then reflected on and think, actually, that, that's a real big lesson I picked up there. Yeah, I suppose the things that I've probably picked up from the leaders that I've worked under and, and thrived with. And I obviously then try to have put those into the things that I do because obviously they, they, they're important to me. Um, you need clarity. Um, and that can be long-term strategic clarity. That can be day-to-day clarity around accountability. But you need clarity. Um, I think you need to be authentic. It's important that, you know, who you are, you're not, impression managing anything there's that level of authenticity so that what you see is what you get type stuff um and i think humility is is vitally important you know none of us have got all the answers none of us have got copyright and any of the questions we, we don't know we only know what we know we can we can work hard we want to do things for the right reasons at the right time we'll make mistakes we'll get things right um and just having that humility, I think, creates an environment that people feel that you care and that people feel wanted and that we're in it together. Um, And that's probably the things that I try to adopt on a day-to-day basis because they're the things that definitely helped me develop and helped me respect the leaders to know that they were helping me to move forward and achieve the goals that we all want to achieve together. Definitely. I think think, think it's a great way to look at it. So just to kind of build on that then, you know, as we look to round up, you know, you've talked about some of your insights around different environments, talked about some of the influence you've had now, but what would you say one of the biggest bugbears you've had when it comes to coaching? <laughs> There's probably a few. I know we've all got them. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, bugbear. Oof. Yeah, or, or something that maybe you look at and you think, I can't believe that is actually happening. Or... There's so many coaches doing that. Like it, it almost makes you think, 
like like you said, you know, you went you went to Rangers and you had that situation. Let's offer them a taster, and that was like, yeah, that was common sense. You know, is there anything that in, from a coaching perspective specifically where you think actually, what on earth is going on over there? Why are you even doing that? Like, how how can you even think that's effective or anything like that? <laughs> um, yeah, could, yeah, well, from that perspective, probably not because I, I I don't think that there's a right or a wrong way of doing it. I think that there's opinions of of rights and wrongs. Right. But in essence, me, there's no such thing as a bad practice, just a misunderstood one. If you're yeah. trying to achieve X, but you're doing Y, there's a misunderstanding, then then there's a problem. Um, I would never look at someone and think that's not right. I've got an opinion. I've got a coaching brand. I've got a way of doing stuff. I think the biggest bugbear, the reason I was probably pausing and thinking, there's like a long list in my head of little <laughs> things that probably niggle me. Um, but for me, it's about standards. Yeah, It's about making sure that when you walk on the grass, you've got young children, young adults, whoever it is in front of you, that that session potentially is really important to them. And it's making sure that you've planned appropriately. Um, you deliver um, by putting them at the heart of it and not yourself. And then you, you take the time to reflect, to learn, to then make sure the next time you go on the grass, we're in, in a better place than we were the previous time we went on the grass. So maintaining those sort of high standards around plan, do, review, I think is important. It frustrates me when people maybe cut corners or maybe come in and coach sessions and not players. Um, and they're actually coaching for themselves and it's about them and it's not about the people that it should be, which is the ones that are, are, that are in the session and that you're trying to support and guide and instruct and give a passion for, for the beautiful game that we play. So that sort of level of selfishness is probably the one bit that bugbears me. But listen, I don't blame people when they do that because, again, it's it's environmental, isn't it? If that's the situation that you're in, um, sometimes you're trying to self-promote for certain reasons. There'll, there'll be times when we all drift into those things. I, I probably definitely have drifted into that, yes. Um, but it's just making sure that we don't drift into it too long and we don't stay in those zones too often. Um, and I say it a lot to our coaches coach players don't coach sessions because it's about the individuals within your session. Listen, the, 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 the session content or the curriculum or the topic that you're doing, that's just the vehicle of the day. In essence, you're, you're working with individuals and you're trying to as best you can touch to make it personal for those people and make it relative to their wants and needs around that day. And if the topic's dribbling, then great. We're going to try and facilitate some support using that vehicle moving forwards, but I'm not coaching the session, just doing like a little list of KPIs of coaching points. Nah, that's, that's being like a cook. I like chefs that know what the recipe is and sort of taste as they go and their experience enables them to, to be able to use the ingredients in front of them differently than they did the last time, not just necessarily go, right, add this ingredient, add that ingredient, because that's the next logical step. Be a, be a chef, not a cook. No, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, in fact, I think I've got a title for the episode as well. Coach players, not sessions. But that's a brilliant one, Ryan. I love it. Um, you know, just to, just to kind of you know move things on. Now, so, you know, really, you know, you've had a lot of experience. Um, obviously, you've got into coaching because of an injury, but you've you know you've been coaching for you know maybe what, twenty odd years now, probably more now. If you could go back now mm -hmm. and speak to yourself when you first started getting into it, or maybe thinking right, this is, I've got to take this seriously now because my playing career has come to an end. What are some of the messages you'd like to give yourself? You know, you, you could just go and speak to yourself back then, right now. What would what one message be? It's, it's interesting, because 
I probably wouldn't want to spoil the journey that I've been on. So I wouldn't try and advise myself to change anything I've done because I think it shaped the person that I have. Yeah. The one thing that I would probably tell myself, don't chase money. If you're good, money will chase you eventually. Don't necessarily be too eager to take that extra pound note. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I wouldn't change anything I've done yet. I look back and there's some areas that, you know, you think, I wish, mate, what, what if I'd have, you know, stayed here or done that a bit longer or maybe not done that. But in essence, they're not regrets because the person I am today is, is shaped from everything that I've done, good, bad and indifferent. Um, so I'm, I wouldn't want to spoil the journey of my younger self going on one if I could go back in time. I'd let myself experience it exactly how it's run out. I really would. I wouldn't change a thing, even the bad bits, even the downtimes, even the real tough attritional bits. I'd live them all again because mm. they've shaped who I am. And I think that's it. It's, I, I definitely get that. You know, you, you don't want to change the journey, but I think yeah, it's really important just to have, you know, that bit of insight around, okay, what, what is one piece of information actually would just help you manage that journey a little bit better and cope with the challenges along the way? And, you know, just and speaking of challenges and, you know, what would you say is one of the biggest challenges you have faced along that way? Not being a professional. Okay. So um, one of the biggest challenges, and, and again, I know that everyone faces lots of different things and, and I know there's lots of initiatives speaking to obviously Butch at the FA around people finding it difficult and barriers and, and sort of ceiling, glass ceilings that they try to break through. Um, I can understand a little bit because, again, going back back in the day a little bit, it was a little bit of an old boys network. Mm. And I've, I've felt that I've had to fight quite hard to um, not prove your worth, but you know what I mean? Show that you've got value that you can give and you can add value to do stuff. Um, so that, that's been a challenge that people always um, will look back and go, yeah, but... Yeah, but he ain't played. Yeah, he ain't played the game. Um, yeah, I might not have run around 300 league games uh, or more, but you know, I, I played to, to the highest level I could do, knocking on the door before professional was not not the option that was taken away from me. So it's it's a level that you've got that I think you can come in and add value. And I've obviously supplemented that with academic education and and on the grass vocational um, experience and learning as well. So. That's that's a challenge that was was difficult, um, but I was never put off by that. You know what I mean? It, the, you are the world is the world that it is, and you can you can feel disappointed about it, you can cry about it, you can bellyache about it. But ultimately, the only person's behaviour you can control is your own. The only person's energy and investment into what you want to do and work hard is your own. So therefore, I don't expect anything from anyone. What I get is what I think I've earned, and if there's not an opportunity, then I'll go and knock on another door and try and find that opportunity. I don't believe there's any dead end to anything. And if there is, I'll reverse back down that street and try another one. So it's that resilience to keep moving forwards despite any barriers, challenges or discrimination that you face. Uh, and hopefully as we all work together and the more opportunities within our workforce that present themselves, then the marketplace might become a little bit more balanced and it's around having the right people in the right roles doing the jobs, not necessarily, um, I suppose, fast-tracking people for whatever reason. It's, it's 
eventually we'll get the right balance. And I think we're moving in the right direction. There's some wonderful people pushing the right agendas. There's some great projects out there. There's support and entry points for anyone of any ability across all of the spectrums now. You know what I mean? You can you can have, you know, you can have the first team manager now and you've been a school teacher, you know? And we've got the Portsmouth managers, which is obviously Pompey's my club. Both those guys were PE teachers and have worked their way through non-league into professional football. And there's a pathway for everyone. You've just got to keep persevering, persisting and believing. Yeah, I think... It ties into what my next question was going to be, and the final question was around, you know, if you could give maybe one bit of advice, or you know, if there was a couple of golden nuggets for the listeners to kind of consider and think about taking on board in their own journeys, what that would be. Yeah, no, very simple. I say it to a lot of people: be obsessive. Um, and, and what I mean about be obsessive is be obsessive about learning, be obsessive about your planning. Be obsessive about your reflecting. Be obsessive about your doing. If you're obsessive, it's almost like a fuel that that keeps you wanting to drive forwards. It keeps you wanting to get better. Even when you're tired and it's tough or you've had some knockback, that obsession keeps you wanting to move forwards. Um, That obsessive makes you inquisitive. That obsessive type of tendency uh, makes you hungry. It makes you want to know what's next. So that's the bit I'd always say to people is, find your obsessive fire inside you and keep fueling it, whatever that is. Keep providing it with the fuel to continue to be obsessive about wanting to explore, wanting to develop. So that's, that's the biggest thing I say to people, just be obsessive around wanting to be the best you can be. 100%. I think that's it is, it is definitely a key trait to have, you know, that, that hunger and that passion to just want to keep getting better. So, but Ryan, look, I'm really, really appreciate your time this morning. It's been really insightful, and I really enjoying listening to your, uh, you know, your insights around your journey, coach development, player development, um, and I'm sure have would have um, appreciated it as well. Just, just on a final note, then before we kind of wrap up, is there anywhere that listeners potentially could get in touch with you if they wanted to find out a little bit more about yourself and the work that you do? Uh, yeah, obviously, I've got um, I'm one of the only bits I'm on is Twitter, probably. Um, so, yeah, if they, if they want to. Um, listen, I can't promise that I'll get it back instantly, but what I do promise is that anyone that does touch base with me, I eventually get round to um, coming back to people, but um, I'm not sure. I should know, shouldn't I, what my Twitter handle is? Yes, I don't. Uh, Ryan <laughs> underscore May, there you go. Nice and simple. Ryan underscore May, there you have it, guys. Well, look, Ryan, look, thank you again for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, Cheers, yes. There you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.